Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We hope these messages are a source of growth for you in your spiritual walk with Jesus, or maybe you're just checking us out for the first time. Whoever you are or wherever you come from, we want you to know that we love you, and so does Jesus. If you're thinking of attending ACC, we're currently holding one service at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, in person and online. You can watch live or get directions or other information directly from our website, anacortischristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S Christian.church. So, whether you're sitting, driving, running, or hiking, thanks for tuning in. Let's dive into the Bible together. I want to burst your nativity bubble, okay? So we're going to do a little bit of trivia here. I I don't have anything written down. It's kind of off the top of my head, so bear with me. Um, Okay. When Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, where was Jesus born? Manger, stable, barn, is that what I'm hearing? Cave? Okay. Uh, it's not really a trick question. Um, manger is correct. Where was the manger? Um, if you said stable, you'd be wrong. If you said barn, you'd be wrong. If you said cave, you'd be wrong. They were actually in Mary's in-law's house, Joseph's family's house. Because in ancient times, and we've actually got a picture of what an ancient Israelite home would look like in many Palestinian homes are still the same today, Um, you wouldn't put your animals in a stable. They'd get stolen. Animals came in for the night in part of the house. They went to uh, Bethlehem because that was where Joseph's family was. That's where they went to register. Now, true or false, Mary and Joseph were turned away from a hotel. False. This is a carryover from the King James translation that has never been remedied because it's just like, oh, the tradition, you know, it's so good. Um, But the word for hotel is used in the Bible. It's used when the the good Samaritan sends the the sick, you know, the beat up person into the town and says, whatever they need, I'll pay for it, you know, and so on. Um, This word for in is the word guest room. It's the exact same word that Jesus uses when he tells the disciples, when he tells the Disciples to go to the master of a house and prepare a guest room, like the upper room where they had the last supper, guest room. So these houses were built with a main common room in the downstairs for the family. Um, oftentimes on, the, on one side, there was a guest room or a family room. And on the other side, with a half wall, there was where they would bring the animals in at night. And you'll see like Jesus talk about this when he says, you know, when they're picking on him for what he's doing on the Sabbath, he says, don't you lead your animals out of the house to get water on the Sabbath, and so on. This is what they did. So the picture is, they come to Joseph's family's house. There's no room in the guest room because it's crowded. The census is taking place. And so where are, what do they have to do? They have to be with the family in the common area, and Jesus is born amongst the animals in the animal quarters because that's where the manger was where they could lay 
the baby. So it's a different picture. It's still a beautiful picture, surrounded by family. Um, and, you know, it's just a little different. Now, excuse me, horse is a little, um, throat's a little hoarse here. Um, so now we are celebrating Advent. And this is the season, you know, traditionally the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And different traditions break apart the themes of Advent in different ways. Um, what we typically go with is hope, peace, joy, love. And so this is the third week. And so today our theme is joy. And that's why today we light the pink candle, because apparently joy is pink. <clears throat> but... If your picture of coming to church is flowery, pink, joy, you know, just sort of, I don't know, light and airy and, you know, there's a bubble I want to pop too. Because joy, this topic is extremely relevant to us today, mostly because of all the ways that we expend ourselves looking for happiness, looking for joy. So, I'm going to get a quick drink of water, and then we're going to read our passage here. <clears throat> okay, we're in Luke 2, verse 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I just pray now that your spirit would speak to us through this. Lord, I just pray that you would show us a glimpse of the joy that you offer and how it satisfies our, our longing hearts. And I pray that hearts today would have a glimpse of that joy and be satisfied. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. All right. What gives you joy? What are some things that, that make you joyful? In fact, feel free to shout it out. Someone said, Christmas. I heard that. <laughs> Grandkids bring joy. That's a good one. I can't relate, but I do relate to kids. They bring joy. Food. Somebody said food, right? Yeah, we can relate to that, I think, most of the time, right? Um, I, I, you have experiences of joy with, like, great music or a beautiful sunset or, or a good relationship and experience, right? I asked um, my wife, I was like, what do you think of when you think of joy? And she said, the moment that you've just completed pushing a baby out and they put that child on you and you hold it for the first time, she said, there's just um, such a joy there that your body's just shaking with joy. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. I think for some people, people go to different 
um, hobbies for joy. Some people go to sports for joy. I remember um, the most into football I ever was was when the Seahawks were going to the Super Bowl. And we followed them throughout that whole season, the first season where they went and they actually won. And um, it was amazing how um, attached you get to the coattails of the experience of this team. Then the next year, the next year comes around. We had a Super Bowl party here at the church. And I don't know if you remember what happened. This is, you know, years ago. But this is like, everyone's really revved up because it is down to the last minute and they have it in the bag. Like they're ready. They're on, like they're right in the end zone of the other team. And all they have to do is lob it in there. They have a couple chances. They're only on like the second down or something like that. And Russell Wilson just fires like a direct pass to the wrong team. Boom, interception, runs all the way down the other side, scores a touchdown, and it's over. And I remember watching the countenance on the faces of the people in that room radically change. And not only was it the countenance, but it was like the mood. It was like, don't talk to me. Just People got mean and kind of rude, and like they, it was like everything in their world suddenly imploded. Because oftentimes we attach ourselves to fleeting experiences of joy. Maybe that's what makes joy joyful, is that it's not constant, it's rare, so we appreciate it. But once we've tasted it, we build entire cultures around acquiring it. There's a joy vacuum, as Tim Keller put it. And when something goes wrong with our source of joy, we spend enormous amounts of energy strategizing about ways to recover it. I did a quick search on my podcast and, you know, just the word joy, and there's like a whole channel on like joy chasers and joy this, joy that, self-help, you know, to, to be happy is our strategy. Now, here's the question. Does God want you to be joyful? Yeah, he does. I, I think that there's a, you know, sometimes there's this feeling like, well, God doesn't really want you to be happy. Well, he does want you to be happy, actually. In fact, Jesus says, I'm coming to you now. He's praying to the Father. He says, I'm, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they, meaning us, the people he's praying for, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He's praying for your joy. But... Joy maybe doesn't come in the way that we think it does or look like what we think it should. The angel says, I'm bringing good news of great joy. That word great is like the word megas, like mega joy, huge joy. So what's the source of that? If the angel's logic is to be followed, it's that joy is the result of something. It's not the source in and of itself. It's the source of good news. Good news, or the word is actually gospel. I bring you a gospel, good news, of, that will cause great joy for all people. Now, notice he doesn't say I'm bringing good advice, right? It's not about a good program that results in great joy. It's not a good self-help guide that results in great joy or makes you happy. It's not about following the right rules or religious observance that makes you joyful or happy. No, it's good news, Marie Kondo has good advice that can produce some joy. 
If you don't know, this is a Netflix show. It's a little Japanese lady who goes in and brings order and, um, you know, gets rid of the clutter and transforms your house to uh, something that makes you happy. Every advertiser offers advice. Buy our product and you will receive joy. You got books on relationships and marriage, counseling. They can all offer great advice that can yield greater joy. But is joy the ultimate goal? If it is, and joy comes through advice, then joy is ultimately connected with something we experience, right? We're following advice to create an experience that results in our joy. You following me so far? Right? And if advice is about getting connected to that experience, then life suddenly gets very demanding. You have to maintain control. You have to maintain control over the factors that lead to the right circumstances to create the right experience that results in joy. You have to stay on top of the clutter, or you have to have the money to buy more, or the skills to climb higher. You become more controlling in your relationships, anxious about what you look like, what you eat, what you wear, anxious about the behavior of your children. And guess what? Before you know it, that good advice that resulted in joy seems to now leading, be leading you further and further from it. Joy is the result. Pursuing happiness for happiness' sake will not yield happiness. It is a byproduct. Instead, pursue the source. Go to the manger. Tim Keller writes, advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something that has already happened. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. Jesus did not come and give you good advice that could produce great joy if you keep it. He came and secured great joy for you so that you can receive it. So joy is a result of good news. Okay, what kind of news are we talking about? What kind of news produces great joy? And again, like I said, that word is gospel. Gospel, what is a gospel? We did a whole series on this early, last, early this, this year. Gospel is usually a political announcement of good news based on the fact that a new ruler has come into power and is bringing with them a new kingdom or regime and because of this new rule that's coming, your life is about to change. The circumstances in which you live are about to change for the better. There's going to be joy. A good example of a gospel would have been the Emancipation Proclamation. Okay? A new order is being decreed that is good news marking freedom from slavery for all the African Americans. Um, that's, that's a kind of gospel, you could say. In this case, he says, in the town of David, which would be referencing the fulfillment of long-awaited hopes and prophecies, a Savior has been born. It's news about a Savior to you. He's been born unto you. 
He is the Messiah, God's true anointed son from Psalm 2, who will subdue his enemies, and the suffering servant of Isaiah, who will remove the sins of all the people. The Lord. A term that was just used by Mary in the previous chapter to refer to God himself. Kyrios, the Lord. Implying that in this child himself, God has finally come to visit and dwell with his people at last. He's going to remove their reproach and their iniquity. He's going to subdue their enemies and he's going to be one with his people once again. Now, the reason why this is kind of interesting and why it's not just a matter of pink and candles is because this is very provocative. The reason it's very provocative is that it flies in the face of another gospel. It challenges the gospel of that day, which was the gospel of Caesar Augustus. You see, the context of our story, the beginning of chapter 2, is in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that everyone should return to their hometown and be registered, that is, to be counted as a citizen of the Roman Empire, that is to say, you belong to Caesar. Caesar is interesting. There are two inscriptions. Uh, one is called the calendar inscription of Prien, and the other is an um, inscription that was found in the Halicarnassus. And from those two inscriptions, you get these kinds of statements. One, that it's Augustus's birthday that marks the beginning of the gospel, or good news. It calls for the adoption of a new calendar cycle. The year of Caesar's birth is the year one now. It claims that Caesar is a god and the son of God, Zeus, and it says that he is a savior. It claims that Augustus has surpassed all the hopes of everyone before him and all those yet to come. He causes cities to bloom and brings the, the world to order. Productivity was in its prime. He instituted the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Now here's what's also really interesting. There's a legend about Augustus Caesar, along with Alexander the Great, that claims that Caesar was immaculately conceived by a serpent. Did you know that? I found that out in the uh, Pillar New Testament commentary. So, for those Bible nerds out there, where does this lead you back to? The garden, Genesis 3, 15. When God tells the serpent, he said, I will make, I will bring, there will be enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring, your seed and her seed. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Son of the serpent by legend, son of God by a virgin birth, seed of the woman. Caesar claims to have control over your circumstances. He claims to be the divine benefactor that can secure your joy. And this is what we tend to do. In our pursuit of joy, we tend to look to the authority figures who have the power over our circumstances. And in pursuit of joy, we gladly give ourselves over to their census or whatever it is. And we say, I'm yours. Count me. Count me in. But eventually, our Caesars, our presidents, our authorities, they all let us down. 
We find ourselves being taxed and used for their own schemes and their own glory. Our ability to control our circumstances starts to crumble and joy remains ever fleeting. So the angel claims here that great joy is the result of a new gospel, the gospel of a new king. And by the way, this isn't like the Bible borrowing from Rome. This is all like quoted from Isaiah, which was like 500 years before Rome. So this is pretty amazing stuff. Um, What makes this king different than Caesar? What makes this news different? You get hints of it in this text. It says, born to you. Born unto you. Caesar, who is greatly feared, says, come to me. Come and be registered. The angel of the Lord, who is utterly terrifying and fearful, says, don't be afraid. The Savior's coming to you. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, only God counts his people. In fact, there are several places where kings of Israel get in trouble for issuing censuses. God doesn't like that. He says, they're not your people, they're mine. Okay, they belong to him, not the king. And now Caesar, the glorious Roman king, orders a census. You are mine. Sign up. The God Caesar owns you. And you'll have all the blessings of the kingdom. But you are going to pay taxes. And your sons are going to be conscripted into the Roman military. One of the Caesars even ordered that a statue of himself be set up in the temple in Jerusalem and so on. So by contrast, the angels announce, the king is coming to you. This will be great joy for all the people. And this is the sign that he's coming to you. You'll find him in a manger. You see, shepherds were very familiar with mangers, right? This is a familiar sign. What's not so familiar is a king lying in a manger. Shepherds, I'll just read a quote from a commentary. It says, popular lore accused shepherds of failing to observe the difference between mine and thine. They were very commonly thieves because they could prey on lonely lonely travelers. They were often suspected of practicing the craft of robbers. Their prolonged absences and ill repute disqualified them from being legal witnesses. They don't count. A third century rabbi commenting on Psalm 23 said, there is no more despised occupation in the world than that of shepherds. Along with gamblers and tax collectors, herdsmen were regularly listed among despised trades by Mishnah and Talmud. Caesar forces a census so that those in his kingdom can be counted and taxed the first people to hear the announcement of the good news of Jesus the king happen to be the ones who, in the eyes of society, don't count. God first goes to the outcast, the ones the world's kingdoms have set aside. That's where he starts. Why does he start with the shepherds? Perhaps it's because they're the ones who have nothing to offer in return. This is a king who isn't out to bribe you into submission for his own glory or control. It's the king who comes to the people who have nothing to offer and says, I'm offering you the Savior. 
This implies, among other things, that if you spend your life chasing a place in the world's kingdoms, clamoring for position, and taking pride in being counted, to be counted among the popular, to be counted among those who count by society's standards, if that's your obsession, if that's what's going to bring you joy, then for one, you'll totally miss Jesus. And two, you won't find joy. You see, if joy is rooted in fleeting experiences that depend on the right external circumstances taking place, and if our pursuit of those circumstances is based on good advice or on the benefactor that has the power to control our circumstances, then ultimately you will always find yourself beholden to someone or something that holds power over your joy. Are we tracking so far? Because that's, that's a lot of if-then if statements, right? <laughs> we we, we got to maybe think about that for a second, right? Register. Give yourself. Pay taxes to Caesar if you want the benefits of his kingdom. But Jesus offers a deeper joy. It's a joy that says, before you ever offer any part of yourself to me, I'm offering myself to you. Now, let me be clear. With Jesus, you don't get a guarantee that if you follow him, all your stars will align and you will have the right circumstances that produce joy. No. But instead, he offers himself. He offers a love that no matter what the circumstances may be, will never let you go. A love that will never let you go no matter what the circumstances. C.S. Lewis wrote an autobiography about his life called Surprised by Joy. He wrote that throughout his life, he had experienced stabs of joy, fleeting moments and experiences like a wind that catches you off guard or a sunset or sex or, you know, these moments. And he rejected his childlike faith, went into full-blown atheism, and pursued a hedonistic lifestyle to figure out, how do you figure out joy, happiness? How do you put a finger on it? How do you identify it? So he indulged himself in all kinds of things. In his academic pursuits, he found himself enthralled by the mythologies and the poetries and the fairy tales of various cultures, and that was his main source of study. But as an intellectual, he also found himself troubled because he found himself realizing that everything that he believed was bringing him joy was completely meaningless. But everything that was true was completely joyless. And so he kind of resolved that you really can't have the fullest joy. It's just an aesthetic experience. But later, after he encountered a number of Christians in his life. He was surprised. He was taken aback by an experience of joy. And he wrote, all my waiting and watching for joy, all my vain hopes to find some mental content on which I could, so to speak, lay my finger and say, this is it, had been a futile attempt to contemplate the enjoyed. The images and sensations which he had associated with joy, if idolatrously mistaken for joy itself, soon honestly confess themselves inadequate. 
all said in the last resort, it is not I. I am only a reminder. Look, look, what do I remind you of? That orderly house is not the source of joy. Eventually, it will call out to you and say, it's not me. I'm the reminder. What do I remind you of? That thing you're going to unbox at Christmas time that floods you with this experience of joy, eventually is going to call out to you and say, it's not me. It's not me. I'm the reminder. What do I remind you of? James, which we just studied, claims that all the world's evils stem from basic desire and eventually cascade more and more into jealousy and um, adultery, murder, all of it. But again, what's James's solution? He doesn't say pursue an existence devoid of desire or pleasure. He doesn't say that, does he? No, he says, remember and don't be deceived that every good thing that brings you joy comes down from above. It's cascading downstream from a fountainhead. There is a source and every experience of joy should not be for the experience itself. It should always point you upstream to the fountainhead. It's not I. Look, what do I remind you of? All things downstream change. You lose your taste for that good food. Relationships change. Things decay. But James says, with him, the father of heavenly lights, the source of all good things, there is no shadow or change. So if being connected to God as the fountainhead is the true source of happiness, then what does that say about the story of Christmas? It says that Jesus, who knew closeness with God, Jesus, who was one with the Father, Jesus, who was connected to joy, mega joy, set it aside. He who knew the Father more intimately than anyone else left that place of pure joy so that his joy could be yours. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Again, he prayed to the Father, I'm praying for them so that they may have the full measure of my joy in them. In verse 18 of John 17, he says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now what's this word sanctify mean? It means to be set apart. And the reason you can get this joy is that the thing that Jesus found joy in, the thing that caused him to endure the cross, was you and I. And for you and I, he set himself apart utterly and completely. For you. That love changes things. Is this true for me, we might ask? Is this true for you? Well, if he went to shepherds first, then believe me, you'd better believe he wants you too. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What brings God joy? 
Luke describes it in Luke 15 with three parables. First, he talks about a, a woman who has lost a valuable coin. And then, having searched all over the house, finally, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And that woman is like God the Father who, found, who finds his lost people. Or in verse 10, joy is like a shepherd who lost one of his 100 sheep. Aren't the other 99 good enough? No. He leaves the 99 and goes after the one missing one. And when he finds it, he puts the sheep on his, jo- on his shoulders and he celebrates. And Luke, Jesus says, I, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Or finally, there's a story of a lost son who utterly despises, rejects, insults his father by demanding his inheritance. He goes and squanders it on loose living and pleasure, gets completely broke, finds himself despondent and says, well, maybe my father will receive me as a servant, though certainly not a son. But this is a father who, when he sees the wayward son coming home, runs to him from far off, throws his arms around him, puts the best robe on him, kills the fattened calf, puts the ring on his finger and says, we're going to rejoice. We're going to throw a celebration because no matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from, the thing that gets God joy is you coming home. And when we realize what is happening at Christmas, the gospel of this king who comes to you, not come to me and maybe I'll give you something that makes you happy. No, I'm coming to you. That results in something that can give joy. No other king, no other Caesar, no other source of circumstantial joy has ever done that for you, has ever gone to a cross for you laying aside ultimate joy so that you could have it. Instead of bow down to me and you can have joy, you get I'll die for you so that the doorway can be opened for you to have me and I you. And when you get that love, joy is the byproduct. If you run after happiness itself as the object, you'll lose it. If you run after the God who so loved you that he gave his one and only son, Happiness will be a byproduct. So, don't let your happiness steal your joy. Don't let your happiness steal your joy. Came up with that one years ago in a sermon on Romans 5, I think. In fact, I'll read it. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, our circumstances that usually don't result in joy. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us.
This is a joy that can withstand circumstances. This is a joy that is not nearly as fragile as what our benefactors offer. This is a joy that doesn't, that can outlast your Christmas presents and your clean house. Like this is a joy that can be sustained in the midst of trials and suffering, which is the removal of joyful circumstances because of a love that will not leave you or forsake you. He plants it into our hearts through the Holy Spirit when we repent and come to God. The Holy Spirit had caused something to grow in Mary too, right? Consider it pure joy, Mary, when you were reviled by your community as an unmarried pregnant girl. Consider it pure joy, Mary, when your husband nearly divorces you. Consider it pure joy, Mary, when Caesar orders a census and you have to travel 70 miles on the back of a donkey at the end of your third trimester. Consider it pure joy, Mary, when you find yourself giving birth in the animal quarters of your in-law's house, and if they don't buy the immaculate conception thing, that would be awkward. (laughs) Consider it pure joy, Mary, when Herod the great decides to hunt you down. Consider it pure joy when you have to flee to Egypt, the land from which your people were once delivered from slavery because of that which is being birthed in you. Very truly I tell you, Jesus says, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You'll look at them and you'll say, they're happy. Why am I not happy? You'll grieve and your grief will turn to joy. But your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again. And you will rejoice. And no one will be able to take away your joy. Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit that lives in you. That's what we can hope in. That's what we can take joy from. And in Romans 8, 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Consider it pure joy, Mary. Consider it pure joy, ACC, when you experience the groanings of creation. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. And in the meantime, what does Paul say? That great passage in Romans 8, it says there is nothing in heaven on earth, heaven or on earth or under the earth, nothing, no power, no principality, not even the sword, not death itself can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not an instant gratification kind of joy. 
And it's not a denouncement of any gratification or joy itself either. But it is a true joy. It is a solid joy. It's a more fundamental happiness that can outlast our fragile circumstances. The love of God poured into our hearts that does not change when our circumstances do. So good news, a gospel that will bring great joy to all the people. A savior has been born unto you, not you unto him, unto you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and if you will have him, you will have a love that can never be taken away and a promise of a future that is guaranteed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, sometimes we confess, we, we drink downstream from the fountainhead and we say, wow, that's really good. And we settle for transient joys. And then when we can't have those joys like the end of that Seahawks game, we implode internally and we can't understand the despondency that we've felt. And so we turn around and we go, what's the strategy? How do I find joy? Tell me, Caesar. Tell me, Mary Kondo. Tell me how I can get it right and have joy. And we become more anxious and controlling. Joy becomes more fleeting. And I sense, God, that there are people here who need to rest, who need to let go, who need to have a reawakened revelation of your love in their hearts through the Holy Spirit, a love that doesn't fade, a love that can allow us to face circumstances and frustration and, and recognize that even this is for our good and will one day produce joy. Lord, this Christmas, help us to be grateful for the subtle joys and the experiences that you give us as a gift. Let us not make idols of those, but let us be reminded, who does this remind me of? Because it's not the item itself. It's a signpost. So I pray, God, that we would find the source, the spring, the fountainhead. Thank you for your forgiveness for our sins and making a way. Thank you, Jesus, for setting aside what you had to bring the fullest joy in us, to give us what you had. Thank you for laying it aside. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus and hasn't received this gift that has been given to you, I ask that you would reach out to God and say yes to him and that you would come and talk to me or someone here in the church who can help you with how we respond to that and what the next steps are in terms of just receiving Jesus as our Savior. Lord, as we come to your table now, I pray you go with us and make this sign an active reminder of what you did out of love to purchase our joy. It's in Jesus' name I pray.
Thanks again for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ or have questions about having a relationship with Jesus, we would love to hear from you. Call us at 360-293-3729 or visit our website anytime. Have a great week and remember you are loved by us and by Jesus. Jesus.